All right, welcome everybody. First Corinthians, uh, our introduction to, really excited about this uh, because we're gonna now open ourselves up to understanding uh, Christianity, really, and theological and doctrinal uh, points of view. And unfortunately, sort of unfortunately, I have to preface it with a little bit about, a little history about Corinth. Uh, it's not unfortunate, it, but it's not really necessary to understand the, the spiritual messages that are contained herein. But nevertheless, if you haven't been with us before, we pray, we sing the word of God set to music, we sit in silence for a couple minutes, give everybody a chance to talk with God in a collective, literal sense. We know you talk to him all day long throughout your week and things, but this is you know, a gathering of believers and then we come back and we go verse by verse. We're gonna get into some verse by verse today, the first few verses, which they, they automatically are packed with so much great stuff and it just continues on that way. So um, let's pray and um, we'll go from there. God, we... Uh, we pause uh, in our busy schedules and our busy lives and things spinning around that we need to take care of and think about and focus on. But we, uh, we thank you for your presence in our lives. And the more of that presence, uh, the more we rejoice. We pray you will fill us uh, with your spirit as we enter into our discussions and study of 1 Corinthians. It is packed with information that is so key to simple understanding of the good news and what you have done for us. We pray that your spirit will be in abundance, the spirit of truth, and uh, that you will guide and, and move us into more liberty because where the spirit is, the spirit is the Lord, and where that spirit is, there is liberty. And so we just pray that we will become more and more free uh, as we learn the things that are true. Can't be free in falsehood. So the things I'm wrong in, and as we begin our study, just help us to uh, correct that, self-correct here in our, after Q&A or through study or the spirit will we'll correct me and correct ourselves and the ideas we have as we move forward. We pray for those who uh, struggle in the faith, struggle with life, and uh, let them know, those who are at home and watch live or on the archives, that they're in our prayers. And we just seek you now as we listen to your words set to music in Jesus' name. Amen. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth.
bathroom. I didn't want you to hear me. <laughs> yeah. All right. We learned in our study of Acts, which we just left behind, Corinth, the Greek Corinthos, is a small, small territory dynasty in Greece. For those of you who are interested, it's, uh, I'm going to draw a picture, so I won't even talk about uh, today, it's a connection, when you'll see on this map that I'll draw, try to draw, there's, there's the main body of Greece, and then there's this little connecting isthmus to this big chunk of land they call Peloponnesus. And that little isthmus, that little connection, is where Corinth sits. Peloponnesus looks like its own country, it's so big, but it's part of Greece too. So, 
the remains of the city are about 50 miles west of Athens at the eastern uh, end of the Gulf of Corinth, it's called, about 300 feet above sea level. Total land mass is about 40 square miles. Put that into uh, perspective. Salt Lake City is 110 square miles. So um, Provo is 44 square miles. So Corinth is smaller than Provo. All this talk about Corinth and everything, it's actually just a, it's really a small place, small but powerful. It stood in the middle of that isthmus that I'm gonna draw at the narrowest part and at that part, it was six miles wide between two bodies of water. So it was really an important place because from the east, you would have the body of water lead ships that would bring products from the east over and try to get through that isthmus with their products and merchandise. And then from the west, you would have uh, boats come through that body of water and bring their products. So all of it had to go through Corinth. And as a result of this commerce and trade anciently, it became extremely wealthy. And so money was part of their culture. And um, let me just draw this on the board. I'll talk, Mary, I'm going to talk from here just for a minute. I am really horrible at drawing maps. Uh, but let me try. Uh, the, if this is Russia, all right, and it breaks down and it goes into the land where my son-in-law is from and my grandsons are from, Sweden and Denmark, up in here, and uh, drops down like this, and goes out over here, and then here's the British Isles. And then you come back kind of around like this, and you come down here, and then you have the Italian boot that everyone talks about. And then you go up here like this, and this is all water, of course. And this is water. And then what happens, you come around like this, and this is Greece, and it narrows down to this, land and then it opens up to the, another piece of land like this and then it goes up and there's a body of water here and it goes right and this is Turkey. So this is water of course and Corinth is right here. This is water, this is water, this is Greece, this is Greece, it's called Peloponnesus, it's that body of, uh, that I was talking about and right here six miles wide this isthmus at the narrowest spot is where Corinth sat. And we might recall from our study of Acts that anciently the Greeks said that the person who established Corinth, his name is Sisyphus. And you may have heard of Sisyphus in Greek literature. He's the guy who got punished because he was uh, crafty and deceitful. And so the gods punished Sisyphus with the idea of you have to roll this rock up this hill and only to get it to the top and watch it roll back down and you go back down and you roll the rock back up to the top and it rolls back down. And that's, it's called, when you, and something in your life is mundane and repetitive and it never ends, it just keeps cycling like that. Uh, like Mary says her marriage to me has been. It's a Sisyphean, a Sisyphean act. You're, it's going up, 
it rolls back down, right? Raising teenagers, very Sisyphean. So it is believed by the Greeks anciently that Sisyphus uh, established Corinth. When it was founded, we don't know. The word comes from Corin and thus, and it is believed that Pelops down here had something to do also with its establishment. Now, think about this. Merchandise from Italy and all the western parts to go east to cut off this tra travel by sea could really uh, cut it short by crossing six miles right here. And so what would happen is they tried different ways like logs and taking their ships and rolling them over. There's all sorts of efforts by the different uh, merchants to cross that land. And, uh, but whatever happened right there in the middle of it, Corinth was able to co uh, collect um, goods and provide services. And it became uh, what was called by many in the ancient world, the mart of the world. Uh, quite a fascinating place to live. They also held Olympic games there. And Paul will refer in chapter nine to these Olympic games of running the race. He's trying to relate to those people there and they would understand that. And so he appeals to imagery that they would get. All right. Because of its wealth, it was also called the Paris of antiquity. Why the Paris? It wasn't just the wealth. It was what led to the wealth, which would be luxury and materialism and sexual depravity beyond belief. Um, you think about it, you have traveling merchants, seamen coming over, you have a mart where the east meets west, you have wealth, you have all the flesh being fed in this central place. And so Corinth was known for its sexual, what they would say uh, in old school, dissipations, where people just would dissipate their life away through uh, sexual activity. But what really put the cap on this side of Corinth was the fact, and you know this because we covered it in Acts, is that the religious observances of Corinth and the goddess who was assigned to the religious worship there was Venus. And so you have Diana, who's the principal deity of Ephesus, and you have Minerva, who's the principal deity of Minerva. Well, at Corinth, you have this goddess named Venus, and De Venus is centered on reproduction and sex, sexual pleasure, Venus, that's, that's, that's her. So it is believed anciently that they thought their goddess and, and activity toward what the goddess represented would protect you in your country. So therefore, the more indulgent they could be toward the practices of Venus, the more protected they would be. And they probably had good reason to believe this was true because look how wealthy they were. So they could say, hey, you know, Venus is protected. Look at all this commerce. We have everything we ever want. These practices of Venus pay off. So we're gonna continue to be part of them. What a place to plant a church. I mean, I, it's just like maybe New Orleans or San Francisco or some, something like that today where you're at the hotbed of, 
uh, of wealth and pagan practices and, and heightened sexual uh, liberation. Now, Venus had in her shrine at Corinth, and we've talked about that in Acts, there were a thousand courtesans. That's another word for prostitutes. And they were apparently the most beautiful women from the East and the West. And they were brought there and they would work the temple of uh, Venus and that would involve uh, sexual uh, activity. And so when they would have a time that's of, of danger in Corinth or uh, if something was getting them in trouble, there was gonna be an invasion or there was a crop failure, then what they did was they said, prostitutes of the temple, get going, we need money. So they would get busy and bring in more visitors and people traveling to visit them because every visit came with a price and a donation. <laughs> We're gonna start, <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> Some of you who know me know I was gonna make a really bad joke, but it's beginning with the cage women. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> no, it's totally kidding. But this is how they made money. So, I mean, just think about it. Our taxes are waning. We need more cash coming in. We have a, an army that's going to invade us. Women, get busy. Use your beauty. Bring more people in and get them involved in these sexual practices. And we'll have our military fortifications. Additionally, when an individual wanted success, uh, they believed that by going to the temple and involving themselves with one of these courtesans, that they would have greater success through these engagements. And uh, so where did all these thousands of beauties come from? The foreign merchants would go through their lands and bring them in and sell them and uh, provide them if, if someone wanted to come freely. Uh, so it turned into a horrible place and a wonderful place depending on where your perspective is. And the result of that is Corinth was known for being the most morally bankrupt of all of Greece. And I think it's really important to understand that as we read through the problems the church members are going to have. We're gonna read about one of the problems that causes Paul to write is that a young man slept with his father's wife is how it puts it. Now, it could have been his mother, which some people would say that what it was, or it could have been one of his father's other wives, or maybe a stepmother. His real mother had divorced or something, but this is a problem, and the church did nothing about it because to them, they were just like, yeah, big deal. You know, come on, I mean, yeah, that happens, you know, and, and so nothing was done, and so Paul was like, wait a second, and we're gonna talk all about church discipline from Paul's perspective, and then how it does or does not apply to us today and why. Because there are people who will read this and then what they do is they begin a uh, expedited process of then making sure everybody in their congregation is morally pure. I mean, we don't have many people sleeping with their mothers, but we, we, uh, we might have uh, you know, some fornication or homosexuality. And so we have evidence here that Paul clearly didn't allow for that in the church. So therefore, using that model, we will do the same thing, you see. And we're gonna talk about that and how that relates contextually to our understanding of the Bible. But Corinth was also known for its academic uh, 
refinement, and it was known for its learning. Cicero, the Roman Cicero uh, historian, calls uh, uh, Corinth the light of all Greece. So we've got radical things. We have it being the center of debauchery. We have it being the light of all Greece. We have it being the Paris of uh, the Western uh, ancient world. This place was really something at one time. Go there now, it's really nothing. It's not much. It's really fascinating. Let's quickly cover how the church got there. You know this history, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time. Back to Acts 18, you know that Paul uh, landed in Corinth and he established the church there at that time. He was on his way from Macedonia to Jerusalem. He was on a trip from a, the place called Macedonia, which is up by Turkey, above, no, is up above Greece, on his way to Jerusalem, quite a distance, 1,700 miles, I think. And uh, before arriving, he had passed some, times in, some time in Athens and he had preached the gospel there. And while alone in Athens, he was expected to be joined by Silas and Timothy. You remember this? It's something we've covered, but he waited there. And when they didn't show up, he uh, happened to travel, to travel to Corinth. There he met a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. And, uh, and uh, they had recently arrived there from Rome. They began making tents together. Uh, and waiting on uh, Silas and Timothy. And when they arrived, Paul started preaching to, first to the Jews who rejected him and then to the Gentiles. In the city, Paul remained there 18 months according to Acts 18.11. So we know he was there a full 18 months and uh, people were coming around. Uh, what is that phrase? Mary says, where the light shines brightest, uh, the darkness is greatest or where the darkness is creates the greatest shadow, and we have that here. We have great darkness, but when the light comes in, you, you, you have people who will wake up. What have I been doing? What have I been doing with my life, you know? And, and so you have the light come into a very dark place, you know? Uh, there's relation to light and darkness there. Uh, Paul was opposed by the Jews with a guy named Sosthenes, who was their leader. You remember this story, and he was brought before Gallio, and Gallio refused to hear the case, and Paul was discharged. And it is said that he remained a good while, Acts 18, 18, and then he sailed into Syria. The size of the church uh, that was first organized there and the general character of the people we don't know much about. And there's reason to think that Sosthenes, was the, who was a Jew and the principal agent uh, uh, of the Jews in arraigning Paul, became a believer. We're going to see in the very first verse of this letter that his amanuensis, which means Paul's recorder of the things Paul was telling him to write, was a guy named Sosthenes there in Corinth. We learned in Acts 18 that Sosthenes was a leader of the Jews at one time, and the Jews got on him because he didn't do his job. Well, he probably didn't do his job because he was converting it's doubtful that there's another Sosthenes in Corinth that became a Christian than the one that was named in Acts. So it's believed they're one and the same purpose. Some people say there's no proof of that, and there really isn't. But if you tie the two together, it's possible. Paul subsequently visited Corinth about 58 AD, or six years after he established a church there. Uh, he passed the winter in Greece, and, uh, and on his journey to Macedonia, to Jerusalem, he stopped there on his fifth trip. During this stay at Corinth, he wrote the epistle to the Romans, 
which we've already covered in meat. If you're wondering why we went from Acts to Corinthians, uh, one, we've already covered that in meat, and two, Romans is a very heavy, meaty book and not one if we're just learning the basics of the Christian faith. Uh, when did Paul write this letter? We don't know, but we do know that it, by the internal evidence, Paul was, according to, there's not anybody, even critics of the faith, anciently, who said Paul didn't write it. So there's no dispute over who authored this. Paul, it bears his name, it has all the internal uh, things. There is a question though, is did he write before? We call this 1 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes, I wrote unto you in an epistle. So what Paul is saying there is, I wrote to you before this. There's another 1 Corinthians, this is actually 2 Corinthians. I wrote to you and that this epistle was lost or it wasn't included in scripture for some reason, maybe it was known back then, but many people believe that he had communicated with them before in an epistle, and he refers to that epistle in 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians today. By the content of this chapter, it seems Paul wrote this first, this response uh, to criticisms he had heard and read. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul will say, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. So it appears that believers in Corinth wrote Paul letters and said, you can't believe what's going on here. You've got to help us. And so Paul is writing back. And he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, concerning these things that you've said. So we know that he received these letters in Acts chapter 16, and then he began to uh, relate to the Corinth by other epistles. In addition, Paul had been told of different things and disorders at Corinth by, we call them disorders in the church, and they came through uh, the family of Chloe. That's mentioned there too. The family of Chloe came to Paul personally, no epistle, letters written, and said, Paul, this is going on in Corinth. You have to do something about this. So what was going on were first divisions had arisen in the church, probably by a new teacher, probably by a Jew who was uh, once a Jew or was a Sadducee and didn't believe in the resurrection. So Paul is going to talk about divisions and he's gonna talk about resurrection and he gives chapter 15, which is one of the most phenomenal uh, chapters in all of scripture in terms of content. In fact, if you have ever been LDS and you wanna sit down and talk to anybody about points of doctrine between Christianity and Mormonism, chapter 15, verse by verse, has more in it, if you take your time to read it, than any other chapter in all of scripture. And that's wild, because we've got Romans and Ephesians and Galatians, and I mean, there's a lot there, but chapter 15 isn't just resurrection, it covers about seven different things that if you can show what it's saying to a Latter-day Saint, they will have to say there's something seriously wrong with our faith. That's how big it is. So when we get to it, I'm really excited for that. Uh, I mentioned this uh, guy being a Sadducee because he didn't believe in the resurrection. People are funny. They, they cling to a single person or they are a roamer. That's kind of how we are. We will, I know the roamers, I meet them. They're here, they disappear. They show up six months later, they come back. They're roamers. They, they go here and there. And then there's people who will stick to a place uh, until that place proves otherwise. And not all of them are whatever, it's fine. But uh, whatever it was, there was divisions 
entering into this church that were causing it to split. And that was the primary thing that he addresses is, you guys are babes that you're fighting among yourselves over such things to split you. Knock, knock it off. Secondly, uh, the Corinthians really were um, susceptible to Greek influence. So philosophy. And that was something that Paul will address about the philosophies of men and how to be careful. It's really easy for someone to step in and make things more exciting than what the gospel gives. It's really easy. And if you get tired of the essentials of the gospel, if you get, if you get bored kind of with your faith, it's very easy to add some spice to it, change things up, and make it so that you feel alive again. And that happens in churches. And so, you know, add a better band or some new exciting practice, you know, over at Church XYZ there, holding snakes, whatever it is, it's really easy for philosophies to come in and move the church. And so Paul, he was not flashy. He did things decently in order and he took his time. Remember we read in Acts that he spoke so long a guy fell out of a window. He would go and speak from morning till night. Ugh. So the guy, he, would, he was not a fly. He was like, this is the truth. Do you want it? I'll give it to you, but don't expect to be greatly entertained here, right? Well, Corinth had started celebrating more. They started getting drunk before they were doing their communion and stuff. And they started uh, eating great foods, some people, because they could afford it, and other people couldn't afford it. And that created division. There's all this stuff that starts happening when groups get together. So Paul, having the authority, is called into question. He's the apostle. And it's not improbable that false teachers and philosophers were getting in there and originating this stuff. Uh, here we'll read how Paul also has to vindicate his authority as an apostle. He does this in several books. He says, listen, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't step down from this at all with you. And here is how and why I am an apostle, okay? Uh, in a city dedicated to Venus, of course, licentiousness was a problem, and that will be addressed. We'll discuss it when we get to it. And also, the Corinthians, apparently from the words of Paul, seemed to have a litigious spirit, and that means that they would sue each other over things. There's a passage in Scripture where Paul says, Isn't it, wouldn't you rather suffer to be de defrauded by someone else and to take it than to return lawsuit? But there, they were suing each other, and... Uh, you know, that was, he, he, he spoke against that. So let's get to our verse by verse. And uh, that's a little background on Corinth and how it kind of all kind of fell into place. And uh, like I said, so excited. You're gonna have your eyes and hearts opened. I pray to God that his Holy Spirit's with us, that you will be individually taught by him, not swayed by me or by uh, collective opinion, that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes. Notice the things he says. He speaks purposefully. He, he, we believe that he was led of the Spirit to write the things he wrote or who, that had Sosthenes write. And so his words are like the great legal mind presenting a case. He really is careful in how he says things. They aren't just thrown out there in my estimation. So let's read the first three verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, 
unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First three verses. Back to verse one. In nine of Paul's 13 or 14 epistles, there's a debate, there's a bigger debate, but we'll just keep it simple. Paul identifies himself as an apostle. Nine of the 14. Not just someone who was sent. If I asked Dave to, to go out to my car and get something, he would be an apostolos to me. I sent him to go to my car. That's a common word. So to be an apostle in scripture can mean someone who was just sent one place or another. But when we talk about apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a very different thing. Because yes, they are just sent by Christ, but they also fit a model and they fit characteristics that are placed upon them as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is meant by saying an apostle of Jesus Christ. That says something very different than just saying I'm someone who was sent. Um, the question brings up, are apostles needed today? And I've changed in my view on this and it's taken a long course through the New Testament to help me understand why. The answer may surprise you. Shortly after leaving the LDS church, who of course claimed to have 12 apostles like unto Peter, James, and John that represent Christ's church here on earth, I was introduced as a Christian to the concept that apostles like unto them are not needed in the church today because we have their writings. And now I have said that many times from the pulpit and on air that we have Peter, James, and John's writings, so we don't need apostolic authority over us anymore. That's one of the justifications for not having them. Um, I also learned that to be an actual bona fide apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ from Scripture, a person, a man in Scripture has to, be, has to meet certain criteria that are established in the Bible. They had to be called by Christ directly. There's no bones about it. They never, none of them have bones about it. Well, it's too sacred. He called me. This is what happened. This is how it went down, directly. And then they have to be taught by him, which was Paul's claim. I went to Sinai Peninsula three years at least, and I was taught by him, by revelation from him, is how he put it. They had to witness him as a resurrected being. They couldn't just say, I believe he was resurrected. I testify he was resurrected. If you say you testify that something happens, the real meaning of that word anciently, sorry, we're getting into some weird stuff here, is, comes from, we get testicles. You had to have testicles to testify. And what you would do is you would raise your hand and you would, with one hand, you would hold your testicles in the other 
and you would say, I swear to you, what I'm telling you is true, because if I'm not, you can take these things. That's how vital testifying was, right? And so they are not just saying, I am a witness. They are saying, I testify that he has risen from the grave. I can tell you he has without question because I'm a witness of that. That was an apostle. So these yokels, and I have no problem calling them that, when they hem and haw, have you seen Jesus? Well, oh, I don't know, sacred, get rid of it, garbage. These guys, they held them, they had, and they said, he is, and I give my life for it. That's what they lost their lives for, which brings us to the other point. They lost their lives for their witness of Christ's resurrection. And I mean that in the literal physical sense, and I mean it in the lives of comfort that they had before. They all gave up what they had in order to follow him. They all suffered a downward trajectory in their life, not an upward, never. Look at any of the apostles, that's what happened. Because when you are talking about a God whose kingdom is not of this world, those who are his apostles are ones whose lives follow the king, uh, whose kingdom is not of this world. And so their lives will replicate what his was, and that's one of suffering. And it is all through their writings that they have suffered for their witness of Christ resurrecting, of which they do not pull back in embarrassment and say, well, you know, too sacred. It's he taught me, I've seen him, I've felt he is real, and you can kill me for that, and they did, which is another thing about it. All of them died for their witness. Even John, who didn't die, was apparently, by one of the strongest historical accounts, boiled in oil, and another didn't hurt him. And so they stopped trying to kill him. And he went out and he witnessed for the resurrection of Christ, which is what an apostle does. <coughs> to fortify the position that living apostles are no longer needed, we also say that the foundation of the faith was based on a foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. That means that Christ laid the foundation for his church upon previous apostles, previous prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and then upon that foundation, his church is built of believers being spiritual bricks that build that church up, you see. But that has been laid by these apostles who have put their lives down. That's the foundation once poured, never poured again. And you don't pour multiple foundations. You don't keep pouring it, right? Peter comes along prior to the Holy Spirit falling he hasn't been filled with the Holy Spirit, so he's just acting on his Old Testament ways of understanding things. And he says, brethren, we need to replace Judas because it says in scripture that that would have to happen. We better do that. And so let's cast lots. And they did it and they found a guy named Matthias. That's Acts chapter one. And so Matthias becomes the next apostle to replace Judas. We never hear anything of Matthias again, not a word in any way. Why? I would suggest that, that he was called by men, by Peter, without the Holy Spirit. Lots were the thing that determined it. 
Matthias had to be someone who witnessed all the things Jesus taught. Matthias had to be someone who was with him from the beginning. Matthias had to be someone who uh, witnessed his resurrection. Matthias had to be someone who was willing to die for that witness. Yes, he met the qualifications, but was he the true 12th apostle? Well, then Jesus comes along and says, I have another guy in mind that I wanna replace. And that's when the Holy Spirit's actively involved now. And this guy's name is Paul. And from him, we get a, an abundance of, of stuff. Matthias was the only time we ever see an apostle replacing another one. James died very early on in the book of Acts. We do not see him being replaced. Why? Maybe by that time, there was no one left who had been taught, who could be called, who had witnessed. And so we don't do it anymore. That's what apostles do. But as I've dived deeper into the New Testament over the years, I can see that the only thing that held Christ's church together during this time after he ascended and the apostles were on the earth were the apostles. That's what we're reading here. That if Paul hadn't have been there to show up, to write epistles, and to talk directly to them about their problems, and if Peter hadn't been there to do what he did, and John doing everything he was doing, and Andrew and all the other ones, if they weren't on earth keeping that thing together, the gates of hell would have prevailed against his church. Because the record shows his apostles being having all the power, dunamis, from on high to act in Jesus' name, kept that church together until it was taken. You see, that's the thinking. So his church wouldn't have lasted a couple decades. We'd say, oh, but the Holy Spirit can do it. Holy Spirit can, but then why the apostles? If, if that's the case, why call 12 to go out and teach? And do, I mean, Jesus could have said, okay, it's finished. I'm ascending, done. No, he, that physical church needed physical apostles to guide it and protect it from an onslaught of all kinds of cultures and, and attacks from the Romans and the Jews and the pagan rites and everything everybody believed in, those apostles were in there fighting it out in the trenches and writing these things. All right. In other words, I've changed my stance just slightly. Today, I would suggest that if Jesus' church is on earth, Truly his church that he is coming back to get, as evangelicals always talk about, that's gonna happen. To rapture it and save it from the coming destruction, then it is more than proven and obvious that apostolic leadership would be needed, not only today, but months and years and decades and millennia backward. We should have had them the whole time from Peter, James, and John, all the way through, we would have had a record of apostles replacing apostles and all of them having Pauline experiences where Jesus shows up and says, Fred, you need to repent. Why are you kicking against me, Fred? It's 1972. Cut your hair. You're not a hippie anymore. You're one of my apostles. And we'd have a 12th one to fill it and on and on and on and on, right? That is the thing because that's what kept the church together. The point is more than proven in the New Testament. Jesus ascended into the heaven, left his apostles behind, empowering them to do whatever was necessary to keep that church together from the onslaught of attacks. Just look what happened to the church. You can look at secular history, 
after 70 AD, when somewhere in there John died, what happened? What happened to the church that the gates of hell would not prevail against? Where did it go? Did it go upward, bigger and better? More love? Or did it fall apart? Now, I'm not, believe me, I'm not preaching for a restoration. Don't think that. But the church materially became so corrupt, so quickly, doctrinally, in practice, in demands. We think the Protestant Reformation changed it. The Protestant Reformation, it just split it up and it had everybody doing different things. And we think the restoration under Alexander Campbell and Sidney Rigdon, believe me, Alexander Campbell trained Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon brought in the idea of restorationism to a guy named Joseph Smith and they restored the church. But that, that's, that is proven completely faulty when you look at the qualifications of an apostle. That it doesn't work at all. And why wasn't it restored so many thousands of years earlier? Why did it ever need to be restored if the gates of hell were not going to prevail against it? So that age, that period, that time of which we have our Bibles telling us about is fulfilled. Those apostles led that church, as Christ said, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And they would move that forward. And when we get into, you're going to see right off of the first chapter, Paul saying that time, he's talking about this time coming. Keep looking to this time when he's going to come and save us. And I'm here and Peter's here and we're keeping you together through this leadership and power and dunamis until he comes, right? These apostles' jobs would have been and would continue to be if they were here now to protect the church from any type of falling apart at all, ever. In other words, if Jesus is coming back and if he's coming back to get his church, the way that the, the evangelicals will say, then apostles who are indispensable in the New Testament would be similarly indispensable in 80, 90, 100 AD, 300 AD, 1500 AD, 2000 AD, 2017 AD, similarly uh, indispensable, but that's not what the Bible tells us at all. They're not replaced. They're, they're, there's nothing about that continuing on. All we have is those guys saying, I'm gonna die for what I'm telling you. Jesus resurrected, he's coming back, it's coming quickly. Read what I have to teach you understand what I have to say. And then we have been gifted with those words that we can gather together and read and see the spiritual lessons that it has for us. Is it the material church lessons? No, that was for them, okay? We get no apostolic lines. The closest thing we get is that restorationist movement. Friends, these things are evidence that the end of all things, as promised in the Bible, did come. And we, here's the important part, we are now and have been living in an age outside the New Testament model. We don't do things they did in the New Testament to run the church. We don't have apostles here to, guide, to protect us from these other things that, you know, how many piercings to have and whether or not to get tattoos because the material church is done. We have now the spirit and we have that age when Christ and where God writes in the scripture that he will write his laws upon our minds and upon our, upon our hearts. 
and that by the Spirit we will have liberty because it's finished. He did everything necessary. That is truly good news. We have the record in the Bible of how God did it, who he did it through, what he accomplished for the world. Now we're recipients of that record to read about it, learn about it, and be inspired by what it has to say. First Corinthians, Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Through the will of God. Again, I'll just touch on this, but we automatically see Paul make a distinction here between God and his will in making Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, God and his will in making Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ and his only begotten or only human son. There's a distinction. Never forget this order or description, if you will. And every time it pops up in scripture, make note of it. Because if we continue to read through the New Testament, you'll see it dozens and dozens of time. The distinction, not, the connect, not a correlation. The distinction, always made. God, who called me to be in the work of his son, always. Introducing himself, Paul also introduces Sosthenes. I've told you who he probably was. He says, our brother. And then we get to, who is probably writing for him, verse two, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both them and ours. All right, stay with me. That, that, that passage tells us something. There's a tendency in the faith to believe that the New Testament was written and Sosthenes was writing with you and I in mind. That it's a book for all generations with us in mind. And I believe that to be true. That, that's why we study it like we do. That's why I love it like we do because it is for us. But was it written to us? It's for us. But in most cases, we have very little evidence that it was written to us. This is one of those times where we could say it was, okay? And we'll talk about that in just a second. So I believe it was written to us, but we don't have much evidence from the Bible itself. We don't have God saying through his writers, we don't have the apostles saying, I am writing this now for you and for all future generations of Christians. For thousands of years, you will read this book and this is for you. Their salutations were always, almost always, except for three or four instances, which I'll share, to the audience at hand. Why is this important? There's a group called biblical literalists. We have a tendency to be this way. If you're going to be a biblical literalist and you're gonna say we have to take exactly what it says and apply it, then we can only take four epistles in the New Testament and apply it to ourselves. Because the rest of them, Paul or the other writers say, I am writing to the church at Ephesus, or what Ephesus is a good example. I'm writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a good example. I'm, I'm writing to you to the church at uh, Coloss. And that's all it says. If you're a biblical literalist, you would say, well, he only wrote to the people, the body there at Coloss, so cut that out. And if we did that as literalists, we'd have four 
epistles in the Bible we could trust that were written to us, okay? So I'm sure, and we know by the Spirit, that the Bible has great application and purpose and meaning to peoples whether they lived in the 12th century or the 21st century. But in light of this view, or primarily we study the Word and learn from it what it teaches to us spiritually. All right. It ought to be so evident that we focus on the word and love it because of what it brings to us. It renews our minds. It cleans out the things that are in us. So that being admitted and proven, we love the word, we teach it, it has application to us. We have to get honest here. Uh, Where the writers or God in the writers directly says that it was written to a specific place it only happens those three or four times. Let me tell you the times it's not. To the Romans, he says, to all that be in Rome, and we have the whole book of Romans. If you're a biblical literalist, are you in Rome? No, it's not to you. Hate that thinking. But that's what you set up when you make these rules like this. Second Corinthians, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, no addition, that's Second Corinthians. Galatians, unto the churches at Galatia. That was a place, there were churches there. This is who this letter is to. Why? Well, you have a problem with widows there. I wanna tell you how to handle the widows so this letter is written to you. So today we have some pastor reading the book of Galatians and he ignores that. He says, oh, this is how we're supposed to treat widows. Let's do it. Absolutely out of context, no application. Philippians, to all the saints of Jesus Christ which are at Philippi with bishops and deacons. Colossians, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Coloss. First and second Thessalonians, unto the church of Thessalonians. First and second Timothy, to Timothy, to Timothy, to Titus, to Titus, Philemon, to Philemon, our dearly departed. And, and, to, and he adds, and to the church that's in your house. So he gets a little bit more, hey, it's to you and to the church that's meeting in your house. This is who this letter is addressed to. Now, you could say, well, the Holy Spirit tells us this to everybody. Really? What if it doesn't tell me that? Oh, the Holy Spirit told the compilers of the Bible. Were the uh, compilers of the Bible um, um, without error? Were the compilers of the Bible um, uh, infallible? No. no, no Christian would say that. So then you, got, you can't go down that road and you have to just stick with what is said. James to the 12 that are scattered abroad to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. That's what the book of James is written to. So interestingly, if you're a Christian, you could say, well, I'm not of those 12 tribes scattered abroad. So to Peter, to strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's it. Second John, to the elect lady and her children. It's a personal letter. And then to the well-beloved of Gaius in Revelation, to the seven churches which are at Asia, Asia Minor. That's who it was written to. Forget that you will begin to take things from the Bible and improperly use the name of God in vain. I guarantee you, improperly do that. Now, if you're taking spiritual lessons, that's a different matter. And that's between you and the spirit and your subjective faith and how you're, how you're learning and where you are and you might see it one way and I might see it another way, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're trying to take application literally and apply it, you're in trouble. The book that gives no specific audience is the book of Hebrews. And 1 John, no specific audience at all. And the ones that include us, perhaps, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 2 Peter, and Jude. 
There are your four books. First Corinthians, which I just read, says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified of Jesus Christ, who are at Corinth, I would believe, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both theirs and ours. That seems to be a universal application that you can take that. Ephesians says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So the book of Ephesians, we could say it's to the faithful in Christ Jesus. If you're a biblical literalist, you want to go down that road, okay, we'll take it. Of course, again, I don't want to get too wild here, but I believe all of it was for all of us, always. I'm not a biblical literalist. I just take this, but you have to decide which way you're going to use it. Second Peter says, Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith. And then Jude, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, and to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So there we have the limitations. Some suggest that because four of those epistles are named to everyone who is a believer, then all of them would be, perhaps. But to those biblical literals, you have a problem, all right? As a means to clarify what Paul is meaning, the YLT says here, uh, to the assembly of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called saints, with all those calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place, both their places and ours. So that's a very general open introduction by Paul. And we read a line that Paul uses frequently in one way or another in almost every one of his epistles, and that's verse three. Grace be unto you, it's our last verse for today, and peace from... Second time, two verses, three verses, God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So again, we must note the distinction Paul chooses to make in the standard salutation, which he makes in almost all of his epistles. Grace to you and peace, he writes, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? We note, without prejudice, we simply just note the observations of this. Paul does not call Jesus God the Son. He does not call him the Lord God Jesus. No titles, no other explanation from Paul the Apostle who was trained by Christ as a witness of his resurrection. None of that. It's always God, our Father, the one true and living God, all the epistles, and always, and his son, our Lord and Savior, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, always. Also note this, that there's an absence of Paul mentioning the Holy Spirit. He does not say to God our Father and to his son and to the third person, the Holy Spirit. In any of his salutations, he never includes the Holy Spirit. Never. If that Holy Spirit was a third person, as much as I'm a person, Mary's a person, and Mallory's a person, then the Holy Spirit's being left out of every one of Paul's salutations. Every one of them. Never gives him the credit that he deserves. Never. But once men decided the Holy Spirit is this, this, this person of this three-part trinity. Once that happened, the Holy Spirit is invoked in everything we say and do now. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I baptize you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, inserted in Matthew 28, by the way, I'm sure, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always Holy Spirit included. But Paul, the apostle, never includes it. Why? Ask yourself that. There's three verses, salutations. There's really nothing really in the body of what Paul will give us in the book of Corinthians. But already he's opened our eyes to see the scripture telling us something. And it's consistently echoed through all the other epistles. Let the spirit guide. I'm speaking with passion, but you have to think and you have to go to God and you have to say, listen, Jesus said in John chapter six, verse four, to know God is life eternal, and those who seek him must seek him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and they that seek him must seek him in spirit and in truth. And so if you're just going by the spirit alone and the truth doesn't matter, it's a problem. If you're going by the truth only without the spirit, you're just an academic. Spirit and truth, seekers and children of God, seek God in those ways. And those first three verses of 1 Corinthians, we get it. All right, questions, comments, please. Danny, brother, thank you. <laughs> you know, that last verse you were focusing on, I had brought to mind that, you know, when I was dealing with Jehovah Witnesses uh, about nine months, about a year ago, um, one of the things they tried to do was separate Jesus Christ from Israel religion and the truth of God. Mm. No, I think so. I think there's one God, and I think uh, the Word of God was made flesh, and Jesus was God in the flesh, and I think the Spirit is God's Spirit, and it's God in the Spirit, and, uh, and how, how that actually works, I don't know, but uh, I just point out that Paul himself makes some differentiations here that are kind of ignored later on by us, so we'll keep working through it, but it's good stuff, Danny. I think that's the row of intellectuals. Well, I have a question about my name, Ray. The first verse. Yeah. When you read that, 
Is that how you read it? It's, it's in the way they translate. If you look at Young's literal or Weymouth's, what it would be is something like Paul and Sosthenes, our brother, but he doesn't say, they don't do it that way because Sosthenes, our brother, was not called to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what they're saying is Paul called to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, are presenting this to you. That's how that would read. If they did it the other way, it would sound one way or another like Sosthenes was more than he was. Yeah, like he was giving him a life. Yeah. To be a yeah. Apostle. Yeah. Good point, Ray. Anything else? Brother Steve. Um, so I'm going back on the, uh, the issue of the need for apostles. Mm. Um, based on the evidence in the Bible that, that the calling of apostles didn't continue. Mm-hmm. What's the current argument today from churches who, who still preach that he's coming to get his church? And what's the current argument as to why there aren't apostles? Theirs is we have their words. And that's all we need is their written words. And this is the Protestant claim is sola scriptura. We have the apostles' words. We don't need their living ones here to guide us. We have their words. But then all you have to say is, all right, who agrees on their words? Yeah, who, how many of you are really agreeing on just even what baptism is? So, so that's, how the, that's what the defense is. We have the words. Now, others would say, well, we have the word and we have our church traditions. Now, they're not apostles, but we have our church leaders, and that's what the Catholics would say or the Greek Orthodox would say. There's our defense. We, not, we don't just rely on the word like Luther said to do. We also have our church traditions to back up. But when you look at the traditions, they are filled with heretical stuff. So that's why when I look at their defense of, of needing apostles, it falls through. There should be apostles if Jesus is coming to get his church. And, and uh, so then it falls in, is he coming to get his church? Great, great question. I just it, wanted to oh, yeah. in, in comment. Uh, Sosthenes, I, from my other readings that I did, uh, was probably Paul's secretary who yeah. was writing all this down. That's why when he says, I'm writing this letter, it's coming from me and him. Yeah. Very good. And Ken. Yeah, this is Ken. Um, I was talking to somebody this week that said, uh, the words of the apostles that we have today, uh, the those churches use and everything, but when, I mean, do we have the original writings or do we have recollections from, recollections from ad nauseum? We have, what we have, we have no original manuscripts of any biblical uh, book, none. Uh, but we do have uh, manuscript fragments that if you take them all together, you would, I mean, there's uh, tens and tens and tens of thousands of them. And they can put together the whole Bible that we have through those manuscript fragments. But those manuscript fragments are not original. So this is really important, you guys. When anyone says the Bible is perfect, all Christian scholars say what that means is it's perfect in its original manuscripts. That's what they mean. Do we have them? We don't. 
So why say that is my question. We say it as the Bible's perfect. It is a perfect word of God. And then you say, really? This one, and they say, well, no, the original manuscripts are perfect. Do we have any original manuscripts? No, we don't. Then why do you keep saying that? There are problems in it. They're minor. They're minor. So don't go down the Mormon route that it's all horrible. They are minor. And the, and the manuscript evidence is so plentiful. And then you look at the early church uh, leaders, uh, Polycarp and Ignatius and Tertullian and all these guys, they would quote what the Bible would say. So when we read their books, we can get the whole Bible quoted in their old, old ancient books that reflect the Bibles we have today. Then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you go and you open up those and we have replications of the Bible in there. And, and like we have Isaiah, which is like 99.9% perfect that are thousands of years apart. So we have real reliability. But we also have that problem. There's, there are no original manuscripts. Anything else? Two quick things. Housekeeping. Uh, I, I received two qu queries or comments. I'm just trying to do this as lead. If you guys really disagree, tell me. And uh, we'll talk about it. Because I'm just trying to teach. A good sister, wonderful sister in the Lord, uh, approached me. There's a drive that's going on for Samaritan's Purse. And it's a ministry that uh, decorates boxes and gives it to underprivileged children around the world. Very successful. Sends products that we purchase, combs, toothbrushes, candy, crosses, whatever you put in there. Decorate the box. And Samaritan's Purse takes it to people. The premise is certainly inviting and uh, tugs at the heartstrings but it places uh, campus and what we're trying to do in a different position. Let me explain why. Uh, I am convinced that what we are doing in evangelicalism today is plain church. It's just plain church. It's doing what we just kind of think we do. And causes have consumed the faith. And part of our original statement online, you can read, says that if we are going to support something, it's going to be in the local community as a group. Now, individuals, if you want to do any of that, do it by all means, you know. But campus is aimed at deconstructed church and has tried to focus uh, without collective causes coming in and taking over. And uh, if you go to some churches, you'll see those causes everywhere. Save the hungry in Africa. Do this for the poor. Do this. Do that. And I believe that's a personal, individual decision of the Christian. And it's not incumbent upon the gatherings of believers to do, because it turns into what I believe is playing church. Additionally, uh, Samaritan's Purse is run by uh, Billy Graham's son, uh, Franklin Graham, and uh, it brings in $400 million a year. Franklin Graham is the highest paid uh, 501c3 president, if you call him a president, on earth. He makes more money from this Samaritan's Purse than any other uh, nonprofit on earth. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care how we justify it, the good it makes us feel to give a box to somebody. It's a localized belief and individuals are responsible. That's why we don't necessarily do it. Uh, and finally, I'm not picking on him, but his politics, he has an imperialistic worldview, very big on our way is right here and the rest of the world needs to follow us. And, and that action of giving 
little Peruvian kids American products that they don't even relate to, except maybe a toothbrush, is an imperialistic act. It's saying our gifts and our way are here to support you. And it's coming from a country of that. And then finally, it's not just given as gifts, but we, they follow it up with, now we wanna teach you the gospel. And I know there's justification for that. And this is why we do it. And I get that, but I, I'm just so firmly against the institutionalized approach to the faith because I think that they are a slippery slope that in the end wind up to disasters. That being said, it has been come to my attention by this dear sister that this is an opportunity. And if you want to be part of that, I will put you in touch with that sister and you can do it. If you all rise up and throw tomatoes at me, you can do it here. I, this is whatever you want. But I'm just telling you, this is why we don't get on the slope. Because once you do, well, you did this. I have, you know, provide the Ethiopians with skull caps. And it just goes on and on. And, and what we're here to do is to learn ourselves so we can become that light to others in the community who can see the light so shine. All right. So I'm sorry, but got to do that. The second one really quickly, and it's another one that's tough, is um, I received this in a text. Please consider including historical Christian hymns in campus services. And let me be clear. There's one thing that people need in their life when it comes to their relationship with God. Uh, and it's not prayer, it's not faith, it's not fasting, it's not love. Those things are a product of the one thing. The one thing is the word of God. It washes out the falseness as we read it and replaces it with his truth, which are eternal and they're not relative. They do not need emotional responses. We do not need them, we can provide them. We're a family of musicians. We love music. We can provide Christian music to rock your socks off. You'll be weeping in the aisles. We can do it. But emotions have zero intelligence. They don't have any intelligence. They just have a feel. And so my job, I fully appreciate the value of music, but my job is to get the word into people's heads. I know the music to the word that we sing is not easy. I know that it doesn't fulfill the emotions the way that other Christian music does. But since we're starting off on this book now and we're having some things in the ministry that are throwing up, people are coming with different things, I'm just gonna tell you flat out, I can listen to my worship music on my own seven, seven days a week except for two hours of that week. You can do the same. You have at your hands, CD, everything we have, MP3s, but you're not gonna get that here, ever, as long as I'm alive, as long as I can fight. Uh, you're not gonna get it here. Cross the street, you can get concerts, ad nauseum. That's what you want, go. And I know you do. It's okay, and that is a form, but Ezekiel, I can't quote it now, he says, God says through Ezekiel, I am sick, you come to me with your music, you come to me with your words, you come to me with all your stuff, and he goes, your heart's not there, you know? You're being fed your emotionalism, but 
are you being cleansed by my word through the spirit? So I want to caution you about experiential religion. Experiential religion is a slippery slope too, because once you step on it, the one experience that you've really gotten out of it has to be matched or heightened down the line. If it's not, you will fall into a a spiritual depression. It's the word of God. As much as that's a mantra, that feeds us. It is the bread of life. It's the word made flesh. It's the word in ink, and we read it by the spirit, and that's why we focus on it. So use campus to learn the word, whether taught or preached or sang, and find supplement to your emotional religious needs somewhere else. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we seek you in spirit and truth. And nothing worse than dogma. And someone telling you we're going to do this and that. And I've done a little bit of that this morning. And please know, uh, sometimes we do have to just make a stand on some things and move forward in what you believe is true. And I'm trying, Lord, and I just pray that your spirit will be with all of us. And we can sit down and talk if there's problems in this area so I can explain my rationale and let us always be in peace and in love and in kindness and understanding one with another, whether we agree or not or whether we stay together in this room or not, it's irrelevant, but help us to move forward in spirit and truth. Lord, open our eyes and ears to the things that are in 1 Corinthians and the rest of the word. We now exit out of this room and free to be Christians as you lead us and not encumbered, but free and at liberty to love or to not and to shine or to hide. And no, no, it's been done. You've saved us. So help us to share that news with others, that great news, that good news with everybody we come in contact with. We pray for uh, Bishop Earl lost his sister suddenly and (coughs) you'll help his heart as he mourns. We pray for Diana, his sister-in-law who broke her hip. And leg, she's healing in peace and in comfort for Gracie, comfort of her family, healing from the treatments for cancer. This child, we pray for Annette and Mike, healing from cancer and illness. We pray for the Tidwell family in the time of loss. Pray for Deborah and her time. And uh, we just pray for anyone who needs you, Lord, that they will find you somewhere out there in the right church, the right place, the right person. And, and empower us in your, in your strength with your spirit and your love. And be with us as we leave now. In Jesus' name, amen. For Christ is the end.